All right. Uh, I hope you took the advantage of either downloading or putting on your computer, however you do these things, the material on Acts. It might be advantageous for you to have that in front of you for at least the beginning part because there are a couple of introductory things I want to uh, say about the book of Acts, and, um, and then we'll just dig into the text and see how we're, how we're doing. All right, let's, uh, let's take then, uh, just for the first couple of minutes here, just do some introductory housekeeping things about the book of Acts. Uh, I always do this, whether you, you know, appreciate this or not. Some do. I like this. This is what is called a synthetic chart. When I was in school, graduate school, I had to do one of these for every book of the Bible. And mine are, you know, fairly good because I passed the class. But these are Swindolls. And they're now on, in the public domain, available. His are so much better than mine. So anyway, that's what you see. The value of a synthetic chart is to be able, as a kind of a snapshot, to be able to trace the argument of the book. Every book in the New Testament, there are 66 of them, everyone has an argument that it's laying out about uh, some theological or spiritual thing or some historical set of events, I think like 1 Kings, 2 Kings, or the um, teaching epistles of the New Testament or so on. The book of Acts is a history book. The book of Acts picks up with the resurrection of Jesus completed and takes you on through the first imprisonment of the Apostle Paul in Acts 28. And what it does, and this is how I look at it, basically how Swindoll's looking at it, as you'll see in just a minute, I believe Acts chapter 1, verse 8 is the key verse for outlining the book. The Lord Jesus says, All authority has been given unto me. Go, be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. That's the strategic plan of Jesus that he lays out for his apostles. It is also the way to look at, it's not the only way, but it is a key way to outline the book of Acts. And then um, you face another issue, which I want to get to in just a minute, is, is the Apostle Paul and so on. The first 15 chapters of the book focus on Peter. From chapter 15 on through 28, focus on Paul. As a matter of fact, after the Jerusalem Council, in Acts 15, Peter is not even mentioned. So that's another way in which you can look at the book of Acts. <clears throat> okay? Now that's just kind of an overview. I'll go back and look at this again and again and again in the weeks and undoubtedly months to come. The second little PowerPoint slide, it's a copy of it that you have, the bottom one, is just about the author itself, uh, himself. It's Luke. This is volume two of Luke's history. What was volume one? The Gospel of Luke. <laughs> that was like who's buried in Grant's tomb. You know, everybody. So anyway, <clears throat> but uh, nobody's getting these jokes, so I'll just keep going. But Luke is the uh, author. Uh, he makes it very, very clear in both uh, this history book, the book of Acts, as well as in the book of Luke. He does historical research. He's interviewed a lot of people. He's paying careful attention to chronology. He's paying careful attention to the witnesses of what he, uh, what he has seen, <clears throat> what he has participated in. One of the things you'll see as we get into the missionary journeys of Paul, which is after <clears throat> chapter four, 13 and 14, is you start seeing the pers- first person plural pronoun, we, and we saw this, and we did this, and we joined Paul. And the we is referring to Luke. Luke went with Paul 
not on the first missionary journey, but was a part of the second and third missionary journey. And we'll get to all this later on. <clears throat> and that's one of the things that's very important for us because Luke is recording what he saw, what he heard, what he witnessed, as a good historian would do. And then the third uh, slide, which is on, I think probably on your second page, is the date of, of, of the book itself. I will argue that the date is in the early 60s, uh, perhaps about 62, 63. Uh, about 30 years are covered in the book of Acts itself. And again, if, if you look at that slide from A.D. 33 on, do, on through about A.D. 63, which is roughly the accepted date for Paul's imprisonment in Rome. I will argue when we get to that, which will be well into the fall, uh, that Paul is released from that imprisonment in chapter 28. That is now the consensus among New Testament scholarship that Paul was released in that imprisonment and went on what in effect would be his fourth missionary journey, which is recorded uh, events and details of which are recorded in 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. Paul did go west. He did go to Spain. There is a tremendous amount of extra-biblical evidence of Paul being in the western Mediterranean in the mid-60s, uh, 65, 66. <clears throat> and then, as he makes his way back to the central Mediterranean, he is rearrested at the heights of Nero's persecution and then executed by the Roman Empire in A.D. 68. Um, he, would, he was a Roman citizen, so he would have been executed by decapitation. Rome executed its citizens by decapitation, non-citizens by crucifixion in the first century. Peter was not a Roman citizen, so he was executed by crucifixion. Paul was a citizen, so he would have been executed by decapitation. <clears throat> now, I threw a lot at you there, but you know, if, you're, if you're interested in some of the background uh, items... These are the key things like authorship, date, and basic overview of the book. <clears throat> Any questions? Yeah, go ahead. So you said it's Luke's laying out history. Why were the Orthodox and Coptic Christians not part of his whole story? And then that. Well, the those those uh, what, do I, what do I call them? Those labels, those categories, Glenn really come later in the history of the church. They went into Egypt, right? Oh, yeah. So it, the Egyptian Christians really aren't, their history isn't covered. Well, yeah. Uh, the, well, in one sense there is, another sense I'm not sure, because there is so much that's going on in the first century that's not recorded in either the Gospels or in the Book of Acts. I mean, there's just so much going on because all 11 of the apostles and then the 12th one, and we'll get to him a little bit later, they choose Matthias to replace Judas. They do disperse, and there's extra biblical evidence of where Andrew went, where James went, and all that. The Bible doesn't record that. And so um, the, the only answer I can give for that is that the Spirit of God did not find it necessary to record that. The other is perhaps a... A reason that seems to be clear here in the in in the book of Acts. What what God wants us to focus on is 
When Jesus goes back to the Father, what happens to Jerusalem? And then what happens to Judea? And what happens to Samaria? And what happens as the gospel starts to penetrate just totally Gentile territory? It's the first major area. That's Antioch in Syria. And then in the missionary journeys of Paul. <clears throat> and as even with the ministry of Jesus Christ, it's very selective. It's, it's very focused. It's not comprehensive. The book of Acts does not claim to be a comprehensive history of the church in the first century. It just, it, it just gives us the highlights of how the early leaders of the church fulfilled the Acts 1-8 plan of Jesus. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, uttermost parts of the earth. In a sense, you and I are still in phase four, taking the gospel to the uttermost parts of the earth. We're still in that phase. And so, you know, Glenn, there's just no other way to answer that because the Egyptian church becomes extremely important. And uh, it will be the genesis of what today is called the Coptic church, which is a very important church. And then as the gospel moves into Central Europe and, and then up a little bit later on up into what today we would call Russia. And, I mean, it, it, the Bible just doesn't record that. It doesn't give us the details of those. I don't know if it's just a matter of was it authored or was it when they assembled the epistles and they decided which, which letter would be the there were specific decisions not to include that part well, the Bible, or the, excuse me, the decision to determine what is and what is not canon didn't have anything to do with geography. It had to do with the inspiration issues, how widely did it circulate, and, and so on. There were various criteria they used. And it wasn't particularly what was being covered. It was, does it give evidence of being inspired, and, and so on. Um, so, you know. A question. Can you uh, define Coptic Christian? Oh, do you really want me? Well, I... I I, I tell you, I'm working with him right now. Oh, are you? Okay. Yeah, so I want to know a little more what you know, maybe a synopsis, just not a whole lot. But Well, <laughs> um, Coptic Christianity develops, uh, I mean, as something unique, you, you really get need to get into the 300s. That's when it becomes, it's developing unique things. And part of it, Fred, is uh, how they look at how they look at the the humanity of Jesus. The Coptic Church will separate from the um, main church, if you will, uh, in in the five hundreds, and have nothing to do with the rest of it. The Coptic Church will develop totally differently, totally uniquely, and totally independently of everything else. Many today, now I, I want to be very careful how I'm saying it. I don't want you to go to your friend and say this, no, but no, many, many would argue, particularly how they look at Jesus, it's heretical. The, the, how they look at the humanity of Jesus is, um, is, is outside how Orthodox, and I don't mean big O, I mean small case O, how Orthodox Christianity through the centuries has looked at Jesus. Undiminished deity plus perfect humanity, united one person without any confusion. They struggle with the, um, the perfect humanity idea. They, they subsume Jesus' humanity under his deity. And I'm, I'm speaking theologically. I know that can maybe get a little bit confusing. But that's, and it develops a lot of other traditions that are very different. Traditions aren't the problem, it's their theology. They separate from, it's the first schism in the church. 
is the Coptic Church in the 500. I forget the exact date, 585 or something close to that. I forget the exact date on that. But <clears throat> so that for now, maybe that's all I'll say about okay. that. Is that okay? That's yeah, that's good. Thanks. All right. Now, I, do, I want to do one more introductory thing. And this, I don't want this to be overly complicated, but I also want to make sure I cover, cover this one. As you know, when you study the Bible, one of the important things to observe about the study of the Bible are the covenants of the Bible. <clears throat> and uh, neither one of these should be uh, surprising or unfamiliar to you, but the New Covenant, sometimes called the Law, sometimes called the Mosaic Covenant, the New Covenant, I don't, that's just what it's called, another name for it. But the book of Acts is a book of transition between these two covenants. You understand what the word transition means? I mean, everybody knows what transition means, don't you? Okay, so what you see, and you will see this especially in those early chapters of the book of Acts, because who are the first people that hear and respond to the gospel? The Jews. Paul's a Jew, Peter's a Jew, Jesus was a Jew. But so all, and all the early church leaders are Jews. And Jesus' strategic plan, Jerusalem, Judea, all of the people who live in those two areas are, are Jews. And so what they have to do is they have to look at everything in the 1,400 years of their tradition. Because remember... The law was given in 1446 B.C. Jesus' crucifixion occurs on April the 3rd, A.D. 33. So we're 1,400 years from this. So when, when they hear the teachings of the gospel and respond, they must surrender 1,400 years of tradition. And what one of the reasons they are able to do that is because, and the New Testament uses this word over and over again, that all aspects of the Old Testament, Old Covenant were fulfilled in Christ. So it's not that it was bad or evil or wrong, it's just it's fulfilled. Now it's done. So this is no longer relevant. This is the new order. But you have all kinds of people. And then when they go into Samaria, the Samaritans, we'll talk about who they are in Acts 8, but the Samaritans are people that resulted when the Assyrian Empire conquered the northern kingdom in 722 B.C., they moved a lot of Gentiles into the area and they intermarried. And so the Jews of Judea looked at Samaritans as half-breeds. They wanted nothing to do with them. But they, meaning Samaritans, still looked at the Old Covenant. They, they, had, they believed in a Messiah. But they didn't worship God at Mount Sinai, or I mean Mount Zion, or in Jerusalem. They worship God at Mount Gerizim in Samaria. Now, again, I'm telling you things that you maybe have heard about. So they're still thinking Old Covenant too, <clears throat> albeit with the twists and changes they made. So the book of Acts is this transition period. 
When you have people looking back and they've got to understand what's happened to the past, it's fulfilled, it's over, it's done. And the people who are Jews and Samaritans really struggle with this. The Gentiles don't struggle with it at all. You, you understand? What I mean? They don't have any. They don't have any struggle with this. <clears throat> and they start reading the Old Testament and so on. But in terms of this, this isn't how they're thinking. The struggle with the Gentiles, the Greco-Roman peoples, they're coming out of paganistic, polytheistic world <laughs> of, of gross immorality and gross distortion. And what the Bible does, and what the Scriptures does, and what the Gospel does for them is it challenges all that. But that doesn't have anything to do with this particular. So that's one of the things to remember. I want to make one other comment because of this. Because the book of Acts is a transitional book, there are a number of things that happen in the book of Acts that are not necessarily the norm for the church today. You're going to see Peter and John going around Jerusalem performing the same miracles Jesus did. Exactly the same miracles Jesus did. They're messianic miracles to prove that Jesus is the Messiah. His death, burial, and resurrection is over. It's been completed. But Jesus says to these apostles, you will do greater things than I did because I'm going back to the Father and I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. And the one who fosters this transition is the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit will just come up again and again and again because the Holy Spirit is the sign of the new covenant. Now, I know I may have just confused you. (laughs) I didn't want to confuse you particularly, but I wanted to challenge you because you, you, every book of the Bible... You must ask your question, where is this book positioned in the history of God's redemptive plan? What is this book telling me? What is this book explaining to me? And that's why the book of Acts, for you to really make sense of everything that's going on, you have to remember this is a transition book between two major covenants, two major eras. And people are caught in this transition. Maybe that's not the right word. Well, I, I, you know, stay with that. Caught in this transition. And they have to understand what's happening. They have to understand what God's doing. And Peter, and, and primarily these are the two, Peter and Paul will explain this. What is going on? And in the first 15, well, more like 13 and a half chapters, Peter's going to preach a whole bunch of sermons that Luke's going to record for us. And those sermons are explaining why this is no longer functional, this is. You read Acts chapter 2, where Peter preaches on the day of Pentecost, that sermon is filled with Old Testament references. Why? To show that everything's been fulfilled. And what is happening when you see the Holy Spirit come and people are speaking in tongues and all of the different Jewish groups from the diaspora now in Jerusalem and they're all, this miracle, this is what Joel prophesied, this is what he's going to say. Joel prophesied this in chapter 2. It's been fulfilled. Now, understand God has started the new era. And the Holy Spirit has come. And things are going to be really different now. And so you have these people that tendency to be confused. People don't understand what's going on. And they're just going to keep trying to explain it over and over and over again. So by the time we're done with the book of Acts, 
any residue of confusion you still have will be totally dispelled. Um, I mean, we all know we just finished the Titus. Now, wasn't that more of the transition? I mean, wasn't there a lot of false teachers? Well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it, it, the difference with Titus is a little bit farther along in the history of the church, but now it's the church getting organized. You know, and, and on the island of Crete, which remembers where Titus is. So, yeah, this this book takes us days after Jesus goes back to the Father. I mean, literally, chapter 1 is hours after until Paul and, and his missionary journeys and so on. It's, just, it's one of my favorite books because there's so much history. There is so much historical background that makes this book come alive. I mean, it really does. And I hope in the months to come that you will see a story of God's gospel penetrating all different ethnic, cultural, and racial backgrounds. And you and I didn't remember that in 2018. The gospel is for everybody. And the gospel penetrates all cultures. And the way to change culture is change people. And who does that? Jesus. Every morning I, I get a little uh, devotional mailed to me in my inbox but by Christian History Institute. But this morning... It was on John Hunt and his family. You, I'm sure you've never heard of him. But John Hunt was a British, he was actually Scottish, um, uh, church leader in the late 17, early 1800s. And he had a passion to go to Fiji. Not for the beaches, but to, you know, because Fiji was inhabited by cannibalistic tribes who stole from one another, who murdered one another, who um, were, were totally disreputable in these tribal cannibalistic groups. And John Hunt and his wife planted a little beach hit in the Fiji Islands. And they spent decades there. By the time their ministry was over, cannibalism was ended. Young children were being born who knew Jesus Christ and monogamous, heterosexual marriages were now the norm. Stealing, theft of property, was no longer the practice. What changed? Did European government come in and pass a whole bunch of laws? No. The gospel changed the Fiji Island. The Fiji Island is today one of the great centers of Christianity. I'm not saying everybody lives on it as a Christian, but it changed. I mean... That's what the gospel is going to do here. When we get to chapter 19, you're going to see Paul in Ephesus, one of the most pagan cities in the ancient world. And the gospel starts kind of, what starts to happen? <clears throat> All the occult practices come to an end. And the merchants who are pushing all these occult practices and building these little statues of Artemis, they're going out of business. And they're really upset. So what do they do? They turn everybody against Paul. <clears throat> Because now the civic pride of Ephesus is the center in the ancient world of the worship of Diana or Artemis is at stake. And so they start fusing civic pride with their religious practices. And Paul is thrown out of the city. But the gospel changes Ephesus. And it's never the same city again. 
I went to Fiji with my church. And, Did you really? Okay. In Vanuatu and in some of those other places there, and yeah, a lot of a lot of things happen. Oh yeah. People come to Christ and yeah. everything. I have a, a very good friend that's actually a former student of mine who's a key guy in evangelism explosion, and he yeah. every year he spends weeks in Fiji. Yeah. Because I mean, just, and it's all because of John Hunt and his wife way back in the eighteen. Who's the guy from evangelism explosion? Uh, uh, Bart uh, Beatty. Bart Beatty. Yeah, yeah, Bart was with us too. Oh yeah, Bart's a, Bart travels all over the world yeah. uh, for evangelism explosion. Yeah, unique guy. All right, now all the introductory stuff is over, and it's a quarter after twelve, so we have less than a half hour to dig into the book. Any other questions about this? All the stuff I said introduction, I'm going to weave this into our discussion in the weeks to come. Verse one, chapter one, book of Acts. Here we go. If you're following your notes, uh, this is the prologue. In the first book, O Theophilus, what's the first book? The Gospel of Luke. So you and I are now to look at the book of Acts as volume two of Luke's history. Volume one is about Jesus. Volume two is what happens next. Theophilus is a Greek proper name. Theos is God. Phileo is love. So Theophilus is a lover of God. He is probably, he is probably Luke's patron. What does that mean? His financial supporter. Because, I mean, this was very typ- it was a very typical in the ancient world. As a matter of fact, that was typical up until the modern era, really, so Theophilus is probably his patron. I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Please note that. Began to do and teach. Volume 1 records the works and words of Jesus. To do works. To teach Words. The words, this is so central to all four Gospels. The words and works of Jesus combine to prove who he is. The Old Testament says you will know Messiah. He will heal the sick. He will give sight to the blind. The deaf will hear. He will raise the dead, etc., etc. What did Jesus Christ do? He healed the sick. He gave sight to the blind. So his works are to draw attention to Messianic miracles. If I say messianic miracles, you know what I mean by that? Miracles that prove he's the Messiah. Jesus didn't do miracles to just show off and gain a big crowd. That's not what he's doing. So Luke Luke is saying, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up. Taken up. Ascension, taking back to the Father. Now I want you to notice the verb tense. The ESV is what I, translation I'm reading from. Jesus began to do and teach. What is the implication of that verb tense? Began to do and teach. What's the implication? It's still continuing. It just started, but it's continuing. And so volume two is the continuation of what Jesus began to do. Then now who's going to do it? Jesus is going to do it through his apostles, 
by means of the third person of the Trinity. So what Luke is doing is he's theologically linking these two books together. And the linkage is Jesus. After he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. Again, I just said it, but Jesus is now working in and through his apostles by means of the Holy Spirit, whom Jesus had chosen, of course, the apostles. And uh, just, I'm sure you remember this, but apostle, apostolon in Greek means sent out one, sent out one with authority. These individuals have been authoritatively sent out by Christ. And there are more, there are actually more than 11. There's the, I mean, because remember, Judas commits suicide, but there's more than 11. Barnabas is going to be called an apostle, et cetera, et cetera. We'll get to that a little bit later. Continuing in verse 3, he, meaning Jesus, presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days. Let me stop there. Okay, what's Luke telling us? From the time Jesus was resurrected until he goes back is how many days? It's 40 days. And appearing to them, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs. If you go back, I have a chart on this, but if you go back and look through all the gospel accounts, Jesus made 10 post-resurrection appearances. 10. To individuals and to groups. And, what, and, and actually, even 1 Corinthians 15 tells us a little more information. He appeared to 500 people. We don't know who they are, but he appeared to 500 people. So when you put them all together, he appeared to, he made 10 specific appearances. Very famous ones like Mary, Mary Magdalene, Peter. I mean, you know, the ones that you're kind of familiar with from the gospel account. <clears throat> and I want you to notice something else about the end of verse Three. It's almost unexpected. It almost catches you off guard. Offering many proofs. What did he do to Thomas as a proof? Thomas had said, remember Thomas? He said, I won't believe. I will not believe until I see the scar on his side and, the, and the, the handprints and scars on his hands and feet. And Jesus showed him that. And it tells us Thomas believed. He's offering proof after proof after proof. What proof? That he's resurrected. I want, to make a, I want to make a sentence here. It's a proposition. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the most attested event coming out of the ancient world. Do you know what attested means? That is a very, very, very important proposition. And I have challenged unbelievers. I've challenged unbelievers. Test that hypothesis. I just laid it on the table. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the most attested event coming out of the ancient world. And that is one of the reasons Jesus appeared to so many people. To prove what? That he's resurrected. To prove that what the Old Testament prophecy had said, and what Jesus had said, in fact, are true. I am coming back from the grave. The grave will not hold me. And so on. But Luke ends, and like I said a moment ago, it almost catches us off guard. Okay, many proofs. He wants to prove he's resurrected and prove that all the prophecies are true, etc. And then he says, 
and speaking about the kingdom of God. Doesn't that surprise you? Not about the gospel, not about the future, but about the kingdom of God. In the Gospel of Luke, kingdom of God is used 32 times. In the book of Acts, it's used six times. The kingdom of God is not so much about a political, military kingdom. It's about a spiritual kingdom. God's kingdom has come to earth. Because a usurper a usurper is now ruling this planet. Who is the usurper? It's Satan. Satan is now ruling. This is, this is called the kingdom of darkness. This is, this is the kingdom of darkness. This is the kingdom, uh, kingdom of, of the world of Satan. And Jesus, listen, this is really important. Jesus Christ is plundering this false kingdom. So when Jesus shows up, what kind of activity do you see? What kind of demonic activity? Challenging. You're gonna, one of the most hilarious, when we get to chapter 19, the sons of Sceva, they're, he's a high priest, and they're trying to imitate what Paul's doing. And they're trying to cast out demons in the name of Paul. This is hilarious. A group of demonic hosts say, we know Jesus and we know Paul, but who are you? <laughs> I mean, it's just because it's just this demonic activity, spiritual battle. That's why Paul says in Ephesians 6, chapter uh, 6, verse 10 and following, we battle not against flesh and blood. We battle against powers and authorities in the heavenly places. See, what Jesus is saying, and he's preaching to these hosts of people that he sees and talks to in his post-resurrection appearances is, the kingdom has come. The new order has dawned. This is the age of the spirit. Now go back to Jerusalem and wait for the Father's promise. Hey, the kingdom, because still, still these apostles are thinking kingdom, Davidic kingdom, Davidic monarchy. Okay, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus has occurred. Now he's going to set up the kingdom and rule from Jerusalem. No, not yet. Not yet. It's coming, but not yet. And so what he's trying, what he, I believe, that's why that phrase, kingdom of God, is pregnant with so much meaning. God's rule has invaded this planet. And every time someone comes to Christ, Satan loses. Every time someone comes to Christ, the kingdom of darkness is diminished. And so this, this incredible introduction to what is this new history going to be about? What Jesus began to do and teach continues. But now, now, it's through the apostles. By means of the power of the Holy Spirit. For the glory of the kingdom of God. So we're not done with the prologue, but let's move into verse 4. And while staying with them... Some translations have, while eating with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem. The tendency might have been, okay, the work's done, now we're headed back home or whatever. No, don't leave from Jerusalem. But to wait for the promise of the Father. 
which he said, you heard from me. Now he explains that, verse 5, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Why you stay in Jerusalem? Because the promise of the Father is about to be fulfilled. What promise? The promise of Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36, Ezekiel 37. Now John's baptizing with water prepare you for the coming of the Messiah. Messiah's come, his work is done. Now you're going to be baptized, identified with, empowered by the Holy Spirit. Because the new order has dawned. The new era, the new covenant, the new order has dawned. I mean, this is, this is so exciting. I know it's hard to get excited about biblical truth in this group, but this is really exciting because we're on this, like we're in this transition now. I mean, these guys are they're, they're trying to understand everything. Good night, everything that's going on, everything's fulfilled. Now what? And they're just trying to figure out, now what? They're here, all this stuff, and Jesus has appeared to them as post-resurrection. He's teaching about the kingdom. Now don't go to, don't leave Jerusalem. Stay there until the promise of the Father is fulfilled. What promise? The promise of being baptized, identified with the Holy Spirit, which is in Jeremiah 31 and Joel 2 and all the minor and major prophets. Oh, my goodness. So did they go back to Jerusalem? Yes. They go from the Mount of Olives down the Kidron Valley back to Jerusalem and wait. But they're not quite done because Luke wants to tell us one more thing. Luke wants to give us another account of the ascension. But another account of the ascension, which centers around, his account centers around a question that the disciples ask him. Okay, we've got four verses done. Any questions? You still with me? I, I mean, am I going too fast? Are you? Okay, nobody's responding, so I'm just going to keep going. All right. Verse 6. So when they had come together, we'll learn in just a minute, they're on the Mount of Olives. Mount of Olives is that there are three, three main mountain ridges that cut through Jerusalem. To the east is the Mount of Olives. To the center is the, they call it Trifemium Mountains. And over to the, to the east is, is uh, or to the west, excuse me, is uh, the hill and mountain where Judas will commit suicide. So it's to the east. And what separates the temple and Mount of Olives is deep, deep valley. So they're here on the Mount of Olives. They ask him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Now I want to ponder this for a moment. Why would they ask a question like that? Why is this on their mind? I want you to just think for a minute. Any thoughts or ideas? They know the prophecies in the Old Testament. And so everything happened. So bang, 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 Christ was Christ being accused of um, and uh, dying and, and being accepted. And so they're expecting, well, let's, let's, yeah. let's just keep it going. Yeah, I mean, this makes sense. All that the Old Testament said, his death, his burial, and his resurrection is all done. And he's talking about the promise of the Holy Spirit. Now, what kind of kingdom are they thinking about? When they say restore the kingdom to Israel, 
How do they understand that term? Okay, they're more than likely they're saying that politically. Are they ruling themselves in AD 33? No. Judea is a province of Rome. The Roman military is in, on Temple Mount at the Antonia Fortress and in Caesarea. And so they're just logically thinking, Lord, it just seems to us that the next thing you want to do is set up your kingdom. Okay, now I want to add just a couple of other thoughts here to this. When they say kingdom to Israel, what do they talk about? The Davidic kingdom. The Davidic monarchy. Right? You're supposed to say right to yes. that. I mean, that, I mean, that's how they're thinking that. And that's legitimate for them to think that way. My goodness, Lord, you are the son of David. You're the Messiah. You're the messianic fulfillment of all the promises God made to David. In second, The summary of it is in 2 Samuel 7, 16. So, Lord, it's, we're ready, right? Are you now going to restore the kingdom to Israel? What you promised. You made that promise to David? <clears throat> it is not for you to know the time for the season that the Father has fixed by his own authority. Times and seasons is a phrase used for the end time. Great question. Good question. Legitimate question. But it's not for you to know this. Because you see what the Old Testament text said is the Father will say to the Son, go back. Psalm 110, verses 1 through 4. So I'm not going to answer the question. I'm going to give you an assignment. Verse 8. I'm not going to answer your question. I mean, obviously the answer is yes, I'm going to restore it, but not now. It's not for you to know the times and the seasons. Not for you to know when this is going to happen. So here's your assignment. Until that happens, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, all Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Here's your assignment. You will receive power. The Greek word for power there is dunamis. What English word do we get from dunamis? Dynamite. That doesn't mean explosive or going to blowing things up, but it's a supernatural. You will receive supernatural power. When? When the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Again, this emphasis on the Spirit. The identifying center of the new order is the Holy Spirit. Old Testament's all over the Old Testament. All over. And Jesus is saying, well, look, I know what you guys are thinking, but it's not for you to know that. Only the fa- when the Father tells me to come, I- right now your assignment is you're going to receive spirit-energized power to be my witnesses. And here's the strategic plan. Start in Jerusalem. Then go to Judea. Then go to Samaria. And the uttermost parts of the earth. That's strategic plan. And what the book of Acts is going to do is it's going to explain to us in those approximately 30 years or so 
how they started to work that plan. And we're still working that plan. This is still our assignment. Now you have to remember, for these guys like Peter and John and Andrew, they've been with Jesus. They saw him go through all of his suffering. They saw him resurrected. They're hearing him speak and they're thinking, oh my goodness. That's what he wants us to do. Okay, but we're going to wait. And then we have this account of the ascension, verse 9, and when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up. A cloud took him out of their sight. Now, I want to spend a moment on that term cloud. I don't want you to think of this as a rain cloud or a thunder cloud like we had the other night we had that storm. This cloud is the Shekinah. This is the glory of God embracing and wrapping around Jesus as he goes back to the Father. And I mean, this, this isn't an ordinary cloud. This is the manifestation of the presence of the glory of God, what in the Old Testament is called the Shekinah. And these guys saw that. They're on the Mount of Olives. Zechariah chapter 14 said this would happen. Zechariah 14 says he's going to come back to the Mount of Olives. And so these guys are witnessing this, and they, he gives this declaration. He lays out the strategic plan, and the text says, as he is uttering these words, that's literal, as he is uttering these words, the Shekinah surrounds him, and he heads up. Verse 10. And while they were gazing, that Greek word tr could be translated as they were transfixed. You know what that means, don't you? Into heaven as he went, we hold two men. The Old Testament says for every event, for it to be verified and as, as, as true, there need to be two witnesses. So these two men, they are angels, stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee... Why do you stand looking into heaven? You're gazing, you're transfixed on heaven. Well, I would be too, wouldn't you? My eyes would be as big as half dollars. You don't even know what a half dollar is anymore. We don't use those anymore. But, you know, it just, oh my goodness. That's how they were standing. And these two angels, two witnesses to what I said, look, why are you still standing here? He gave you an assignment. This Jesus whom you have taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Bodily, visibly, and to the Mount of Olives. And there are about 17 verses I could cite for that, but Revelation 19 and Zechariah 14, verse 14 have to suffice. Jesus will come back bodily, visibly, and to the Mount of Olives. 1414. So now the chapter of Jesus' public ministry is closed. Now, it doesn't mean he's, he's going back to the Father. See, at the right hand, waiting for the Father to say, then go get your church. Is he still active? Yes. One of the things Jesus is doing right now at the right hand of the Father is praying for you and praying for me. One of the things Jesus is doing, according to 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, is he's our advocate. Standing when we're accused, when Satan goes to the Father and says, do you see what Jim Ekman did? Do you see, and you call him? Jesus stands up and says, he's mine. I bought him with a price. Get away from here. That's, I'm 
getting animated here, but this, this whole, because Jesus' work isn't done, it's just this chapter of his ministry is now closed. Because now, they're to go back to Jerusalem and wait for the next phase of God's redemptive program, which is the Holy Spirit and the fulfillment of the strategic plan of Jesus in Acts 1.8. They can't do it on their own, but they will do it through the power of the Holy Spirit. And as one of the Roman historians says, they turned the world upside down. Not with guns, not with chariots, but with the gospel. All right, we have four minutes. Any questions? Not a question, but I did a sermon a while back. The Jews are waiting on a conquering military king. In the 2,000 years that have passed since the resurrection, no battle has been so decisively won on strategy and tactics, <laughs> and no enemy so utterly decimated on the field of battle as that of Jesus of Nazareth. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Jim, don't you think uh, here they were, we're looking back on this as history. They were wondering, mm. what what does this mean? How is this mm. going to happen? So we think as we sit here, maybe, at least I do, hey, this is all going to work out. But they didn't have that oh perspective of no. history. No. They're living it, and they're, they're trying to, I mean, just think of all the emotion and and maybe even confusion that's just a part of, I mean, so much has happened and so much is happening. Where are you going? You didn't ask permission to leave. And, and so to try to sort all this out for you and me is easy, but for them, it's extremely. But as you're going to see as we move into this next section, it all does start to coalesce, and it is the coming of the Spirit. But it is, I... I mean, this, so many things are happening and so much has happened. This is just absolutely overwhelming for any human being, let alone for these guys. Just think of what Peter and James, and think of all they saw in these three years. Because you know, it's about three years since Jesus signed them up. You know, it's roughly three years of public ministry. And, um, and just what they are going to be able to do. And what Glenn was asked at the very beginning we, our focus in the New Testament in the book of Acts is on just a small handful of individuals. The, 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 the New Testament doesn't tell us about Andrew and, and about Simeon and Bartholomew and all those. But they're out doing the same thing. But that, the, the New Testament doesn't stress those. If the New Testament stressed every one of the ministries in detail, that, you know, the book of Acts would be 784 volumes. I didn't say pages. I mean volumes. I mean, it would take an enormous... So the Bible's just stressing... Highly selective events to detail what Jesus said was going to happen is what's happening. So as we move, I'm seeing notebook closing, Bible's closing, so I assume I'm done. But let me just introduce this next section. And then we don't meet next week, but when I return in two weeks, they are not a crisis, but they're facing something. Judas is dead. Should we replace Judas? And so what happens, as you will see over and over again, Peter kind of steps up and takes the reins and organizes them through this exercise 
of replacing Judas. And they will end up replacing him with a man named Matthias. We'll talk about who he is in just a little bit. By a little bit, I mean a couple of weeks. But what you see, just let me draw your attention to this, because you paid for, you know, you still have a minute and a half left, so let's finish it. It's, let me draw your attention to just verse 13 for just a moment. We have one of these groupings of the disciples, or if you will, listing of the disciples. But what's always interesting is how the various New Testament writers, how they group the disciples. Every single listing, and there are no exceptions to this, every single listing of the apostles or disciples, who is always listed first? Peter. So here you see it in verse 13. Peter. And James and John, they're brothers. They're the sons of Zebedee. James and John and, and, and Peter, they're key individuals. They will become key leaders of the church. And then you have a next grouping of four, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew. Now, Matthew, you know, he will write the first uh, gospel, first book of the New Testament. Thomas, you know, because he's the doubter. He's always known for that. Then James, I'm continuing, James is son of Alphaeus. We know very little about him. This isn't James, the brother of Jesus. This isn't James, the... The, the, the leader of the New Testament church in Jerusalem. Simon the Zealot. Do you know what the Zealots were? They were revolutionaries. They're sometimes called the Sicarii. Their job was to assassinate Roman leaders. The Zealots were interested in one thing, driving Rome out of Judea. They were revolutionaries. They were the Karl Marxes and Nikolai Lenins and Mao Zedongs of the first century. That terrible analogy, only be, not the communists, but only because they're revolutionaries. And he comes to Christ. And his zeal and passion is now transferred to the gospel. And there's a lot of extra-biblical neat stuff about Simon the Zealot. And Judas, this is not Judas Iscariot. This is Jude, another um, one of the apostles. So you have this rather unusual grouping of the 12, or excuse me, actually, of the 11. And um, it's kind of fascinating how the writers try to group the disciples. But as I said a moment ago, he, Peter, is always first. All right, well, we got a, we got a good start. Um, all that we talked about today, you're accountable for. Don't forget even a tidbit of it. All right, I'll see you guys in two weeks. Thank you.